Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Little Al Diarco was waiting at the payphone. As expected, the call came in. It was Diarco's boss, Anthony Gaspipe Casso. Anthony wanted to know how the Lucchese earnings were looking, as usual, and as usual, Diarco had the exact figures at the ready. He knew how Anthony was about numbers. But this call wasn't just to check in. Anthony had some things for Diarco to do. This time, though, it wasn't another murder. Anthony had gotten some news from his police contacts. Gambino boss John Gotti and Sammy the Bull Gravano, Gotti's underboss, were about to be hit with federal indictments. Diarco had to warn them. Diarco was surprised. Anthony had tried to kill Gotti in the past. The men were not friends. But desperate times called for desperate measures. Whatever conflicts brewed within the families were paltry compared to the war they were all fighting with the feds. Anthony knew that if Gotti was indicted, it was only a matter of time before they came for him next. He needed allies. He needed to secure his position of power. That didn't mean he was going to stop killing. But the people he was killing were about to change. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins, a ParCast original. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Kingpins in the search bar. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our second episode on Italian mobster Anthony Gaspipe Casso, one of the 1980s richest and deadliest kingpins. Last week, we heard about his childhood on the fringes of the mob world and his rise in the ranks of the Lucchese family. This week, we'll discuss how his struggles to keep the family alive turned into a bloodbath. In the fall of 1986, Anthony Gaspipe Casso was the trusted right-hand man of Lucchese Consigliere Christy Tick Fernari and one of the Italian-American Mafia's biggest earners. He made money from all kinds of rackets, from bank robbery to cons to importing illegal drugs. He was also a well-known sweeper for the five families, respected for coldly and efficiently carrying out whatever murders he or the Lucchese family thought necessary to protect themselves and their business. His family trusted him to do whatever was required to keep the Lucchese's together. That's why in the fall of 1986, Anthony Tony Ducks Corallo, the head of the Lucchese family, called together a meeting. Present were Christy Tick Fernari, Anthony Casso, and Vic Amuso, Anthony's friend, business partner, and Lucchese captain. Corallo explained his position. The commission trial against the heads of the five families was coming to a close, and he knew it was going to bring him down. It was going to bring them all down, his underboss and his consigliere, too. The Lucchese leadership was going to be decimated, along with the leadership of many of the other houses. But Corallo was intent on ensuring the family's future by setting up a clear line of succession. The Lucchese's had always been a peaceful family, known for their bloodless transfers of power. He wanted to continue that tradition. Corallo turned towards Anthony and voiced the question hanging in the room like a lead weight. Will you take over for me? Anthony looked back at his boss and smiled, then shook his head and said, give it to Vic. Just like in 1980, when Christy offered him the role of captain. Corallo laughed. The men all understood what this meant. Vic accepted Anthony's plan, and so did Corallo. They shook hands. They kissed cheeks. When the time came, Vic Amuso would be the boss. Anthony would be the underboss. Vic would negotiate with the bosses of the other families, help make policy, shake out the problems of the Lucchese men and their disagreements. Anthony, meanwhile, would run the money and decide who had to die. Corallo had been right to prepare his successor. The Mafia Commission trial verdict was handed down on November 19, 1986. The defendants were each found guilty on all 151 counts in the indictment. Corallo, Christy Tick Fernari, and the other bosses were sentenced to 100 years in jail each. 
The state relied heavily on the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO, during the trial, which allowed the court to try leaders of syndicates for crimes they had ordered but not committed. RICO was instituted in 1970 for the express purpose of fighting the Mafia. But the commission trial was its first large successful implementation. It had taken 16 years for RICO to hit the jackpot. It was the beginning of the end for organized crime in New York. As the case's prosecutor, Rudy Giuliani, explained the proceedings, quote, Our approach is to wipe out the five families. Anthony Casso and Vic Amuso were coming to power at a very dangerous time for organized crime. Or to be clearer, a more dangerous time than usual. They were suddenly running the third largest mafia family in New York. That meant they were raking in the boss's cut on every con the family ran, which amounted to millions for both of them. It also meant they were running a criminal enterprise big enough to warrant the attention of the FBI. To make things even more complicated, there were threats from within the family as well. There were more senior members of the Lucchese family, good earners and longtime loyal guys. And some of them wondered why these two young Brooklyn upstarts, who'd been made less than 15 years before, had been given so much power. There were also shadier members of the family, men Anthony didn't trust to respect mafia vows of silence. Men he was afraid were rats. Anthony turned to Amuso. Let me deal with this, he asked. We need to clean up this family, solidify our power, make sure these guys don't start a civil war like those banano fools or bring the feds down on our heads. Corallo wanted a peaceful transfer of power, but there was no way that was going to happen. Anthony's tone was cold, businesslike. Kill or be killed, he reminded Amuso, the lesson he'd learned in the streets as a boy. If we need a bloodbath to protect this family, then so be it. It's our job now to spill that blood. He wasn't about to let anyone think they could take what was his. Lucchese men or FBI men. Amuso agreed. They started with Anthony Buddy Luongo, a captain in the family's Bronx division who Corallo had reportedly considered as a successor. The Bronx faction was the family's most powerful. Luongo had real pull. He had to die before he got a chance to make a play for leadership. Then there was Michael Papadio, another Bronx Lucchese who had been Corallo's deputy in the garment center. Anthony suspected he was skimming profits off his earnings. That wasn't going to pass for loyalty while Anthony was in charge. Anthony knew, better than anything else, how to watch his books. Better than anything except how to kill a man, perhaps. Papadia was replaced with one of Amuso and Anthony's guys, who was not a made man. He might, Anthony hoped, do a better job of getting money out of the mostly Jewish garment district than Papadio anyway. A hit squad took Papadio out on a Sunday morning in a Lucchese-owned Queen's bagel shop. Fear started to spread through the family, which naturally was the desired effect. One Bronx soldier, Anthony DeLappi, was so alarmed by the bloodbath showering his branch of the family that he up and moved to California 
But Anthony wasn't going to let that happen. Abandoning the family was a betrayal of mafia code. He allocated $10,000 for DeLappy's hit squad, since they had to travel cross-country to reach their mark. The killing spiraled into a bloody purge. Often, after one man was killed, several of the dead man's associates were murdered as well to prevent retaliation. By the time it was all said and done, 40 men were dead, or missing and presumed dead, all on Anthony's orders, although he killed few of them himself. For the most part, he employed his angels of death, trusted, loyal soldiers and captains who were silent, efficient killers. One of them was Fat Pete Kyoto. There was one man who didn't die during the purge, John Gotti. In 1988, Anthony begrudgingly voted with the commission to confirm Gotti as Gambino boss. Anthony still wanted Gotti dead. He still thought he'd kill him someday. But first, he had to focus on his own family. The family was the priority. So he kept ordering hits on Lucchese men and Lucchese associates. Anthony would later explain one of the murders this way. Quote, in this life, there's only one way you deal with informers. You kill them. He was going from the state to the FBI. He was really pushing the envelope. There was no other option. Most of the men he had killed, Anthony claimed, were rats. Their identities had been fed to him by his crooked contacts in the police and FBI. But even when they weren't, even when they died because they were threats to his and Amuso's power or because they might turn rat, their deaths were necessary to secure a prosperous future for the Lucchese's. Anthony was a consummate family man. Everything he did, he claimed, he did for the family. If his reputation was changing because of the blood the family's future demanded, well, let it change. Fear kept men in line and business running smoothly. This chilly attitude seemed to be working for the new Lucchese leadership. Over the course of four bloody years, from 1986 to 1990, the old guard fell into line under this new upstart leadership. Anthony and Amuso started inducting new members into the family, young men that would be loyal to their bosses. By 1990, there were 17 new Lucases, which was still paltry compared to the 40 dead ones. Anthony and Amuso appointed little Al Diarco, a loyal new captain to collect the boss's dues from every Lucchese enterprise, tens of thousands of dollars a month. The new bosses started new money-making enterprises as well, including collaborations with a Russian organized crime group and a Greek one. Anthony, meanwhile, kept a meticulous set of books and a file cabinet with cards on every man at his command, organized by the mafioso's particular talents, C for car thieves, and so on. The family finally was focused on making money again, Anthony's bloody reign of terror was over. He only spilt blood for business, after all, and business, for now anyway, wasn't demanding as much blood. But as Anthony's killing spree came to a close, 
So did a federal investigation into the mob-run window company that controlled $150 million worth of contracts with the city's housing projects. Through extortions and rigged bids, four of the five families were raking in huge sums of money from the scheme. One of those four families was the Lucchese's. In May 1990, Anthony's main FBI contact, Doug McCain, sent him the news. Indictments were coming. They'd be handed down any day now. Anthony was shocked. What rat had he missed in his killing spree? Which of the families had messed up? He told Amuso the news, seething in icy, paranoid whispers. The feds were coming. Coming up, we'll watch as Anthony finally takes his violence too far in a last-ditch effort to protect the Lucchese family and his power over it. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now back to the story. In May of 1990, Anthony Casso, underboss of the Lucchese family, received word from his crooked contacts at the FBI. A racketeering indictment was about to hit the leadership of four of the five families. This included Anthony and his boss, Vic Amuso. He called a meeting with Diarco, his trusted captain and bagman, to explain the situation. Fort Hamilton Park was quiet and calm on May 26, 1990. But Anthony was unusually antsy, his calm, impenetrable exterior ruffled. They had two days, he explained. Two days to get out of New York before the indictments were handed out. Anthony and Amuso, he clarified, were going on the lam. Diarco had to hold down the fort. He'd be acting boss. Amuso and Anthony would still call the shots, make major policy decisions, collect their cut of the Lucchese income. They'd communicate with him via payphones around the city, Messengers would arrive to tell him where and when to wait for calls. Anthony's face twitched anxiously. He'd fought far too hard for this power to give it up for another damn RICO investigation. But he'd have to give up some of it. The day-to-day -day family management, the stuff that could only be done in New York, that was Diarco's. He and Amuso would watch how the other window case defendants' trials went. They would see what defenses worked, what didn't. Then they'd come out of hiding and face their own trials, armed with the knowledge of what arguments were most likely to keep their sentences short. Diarco nodded. He'd run the family for the bosses. In a rare display of affection, Anthony clasped Diarco in his arms. His eyes were full of tears. He was afraid. He hated to leave the family. He'd fought so hard to secure his power over it. And now, right when the blood was finally wiped off the floor. Wherever he went, he'd hold on to the Lucchese's for dear life, however he could. Throughout the summer of 1990, 
Diarco would occasionally go to meet the bosses for a conference in Scranton, Pennsylvania, one of Amuso and Anthony's many hideout locations. But mostly, he received instructions through calls at payphones, as Anthony had explained. Sometimes, the instructions involved a hit the bosses wanted carried out. The purge might be over, but that didn't mean the occasional rat didn't need his brains blown out. But one day in the fall of 1990, six months after Amuso and Anthony had gone into hiding, Diarco's instructions were the opposite. Anthony needed him to help protect John Gotti and Sammy the Bull Gravano. They had to be warned of an impending indictment. Diarco was shocked. As far as he knew, Anthony wanted Gotti dead. Now he was trying to help his former nemesis. Back in 86, Anthony had attempted to murder Gotti. He hated that Gotti had killed Paul Castellano, the previous Gambino boss, without commission consent. It wasn't how the Mafia did things. Anthony killed without permission, too. But he killed for business, for the family. What Gotti had done? Well, that was murder. Or so Anthony had always said. But here he was, helping the guy. Things were changing. The feds were running the game now. Anthony was on the run from the law. Amuso was, too. Gotti was about to be indicted, along with Sammy Gravano. And there would be others after that. With every new mafioso in custody, there was an increased risk that someone would break his vow of silence and rat out every made man he knew. Anthony hated Gotti. That was a given. He still wanted to kill him, but he wouldn't get the chance if Gotti was locked up. Whether Anthony liked it or not, the two men needed to band together now so they could hash out their beef later, once they'd beaten their charges. Anthony was right to be worried. All around him, mafiosos were getting arrested left and right. And more and more of them were talking in exchange for lenient sentencing. Omerta, the vow of silence, didn't mean what it used to. The months of hiding dragged on, all of them filled with the same anxieties. Anthony's paranoia was constant. How was he supposed to keep this family together if he couldn't trust anyone? More blood, he decided, pacing and mentally calculating the risks and rewards. In the spring of 1991, it was time for another execution. Anthony called Diarco. Fat Pete Kyoto, he said flatly. Diarco asked Anthony to repeat himself, astonished. Fat Pete, Anthony whispered again. Kill him. Diarco was silent for a moment. He asked, you sure? Fat Pete, like Diarco, was one of Anthony's right-hand men. He'd been a major player in Anthony's purge, an angel of death. But now, it was his turn to die. Anthony, as always, approached murder as another business decision. Fat Pete was indicted in the same window case as Amuso and Casso. He was also indicted in another RICO case, centering around New York's mafia-controlled painters union, and he was pleading guilty in both. In La Cosa Nostra, as the mafiosos called their world, the legal defense of choice was not guilty. Admitting guilt meant admitting the existence of the families and their invisible power, which was less than ideal. 
Even now, after the massively publicized commission trial, there was value in keeping family operations as quiet as possible. But if a made man was going to plead guilty, he did it with the permission of his bosses, which Fat Pete had not requested. Anthony didn't like that. On May 8, 1991, Fat Pete made a quick trip to the mechanic to get his car checked out. Anthony's men, led by Diarco, were waiting there. Fat Pete dropped to the ground with 12 bullets peppering his body, his own gun hot in his hand from returning panicked, ineffectual fire. His shooters zoomed away. But Fat Pete wasn't dead. After an eight-hour emergency surgery for wounds to his abdomen, surgeons announced that Pete was a very lucky man. As it turns out, the layer of fat in his stomach, from which he'd gotten his nickname, had actually saved his life by protecting his vital organs. He was going to live. And now, after this, he was sure as hell going to testify against Anthony Gaspipe Casso. It wasn't a question of revenge. It was a question of safety. Fat Pete knew that as long as Anthony was free on the streets running the Lucchese men, even from exile, he'd be marked for death. Anthony realized what he'd done when the news reached him through his crooked police contacts. Fat Pete had survived the hit, and now he was talking to the feds. Anthony had made a rare error of judgment. Fat Pete hadn't talked before the murder attempt, and he hadn't planned to. He'd have sat his trial, served his sentence, and gotten back on the street all without breathing a word to law enforcement. But now he had no choice. He was cooperating. Anthony couldn't get an assassin near Fat Pete. Not anymore. That hospital bed was surrounded day and night by FBI agents and policemen. Fat Pete wouldn't be alone again until after his sentencing. Anthony knew he needed leverage. He racked his brain. He sat staring at the walls of his hideout, tapping his foot. But there was no other way. The feds were coming for him, for Amuso, for them all. He was a family man, he told himself. Everything he did, he did for the family. Even this. He told Diarco to pass on a message to Fat Pete's family. If they want to live, Fat Pete shouldn't even think about testifying or cooperating with the prosecution. Diarco was silent. The families of mafiosos, the blood family, the wives, and the children, that is, were considered civilians. They were not part of the life. Anthony countered. The mafia had to make difficult choices to protect itself when times were tough. Fat Pete took the threat seriously, but instead of caving, he turned once again to the feds. They put his wife, children, and several other close relatives into witness protection. But his uncle and sister declined that protection, and Anthony, true to his word, made them pay the price. The uncle was found dead in his trunk. The sister got a bullet in her neck, although she survived. But the wheels in Anthony's head were still turning. He was still furious that they were in this mess in the first place. His mind started to settle on Diarco, who had been in charge of the bungled hit on Fat Pete. If he had made sure it succeeded, 
the whole family wouldn't be in this precarious position. This was his fault, his mess. He had to pay for that. Coming up, Anthony's chronic mistrust and bloody retribution finally catch up with him. Now, back to the story. In May 1991, Anthony Gaspipe Casso ordered a hit on one of his angels of death, Fat Pete Kyoto. But the assassination was bungled by the man in charge of the job, Lucchese family acting boss, Little Al Diarco. This all but assured that Fat Pete would cooperate with the feds. And Fat Pete had plenty of intel to share on the Lucchese family and its bosses. Anthony was not happy. He and Amuso summoned Diarco to a meeting in Staten Island in July of 1991. There, he announced Diarco's demotion. A temporary panel of four bosses would take over daily family management, pending Amuso and Anthony's return. Diarco would be part of that panel, but he was no longer the acting boss. The demotion of Diarco, however, far from resolved the Lucchese family's troubles. Fat Pete was talking. The FBI had more dirt on the family than they ever had before. And more eyes straining for movement from its bosses. Anthony and Amuso could only hide for so long, especially while maintaining such close ties with New York. In July of 1991, just a few days after Diarco was demoted, Vic Amuso, boss of the Lucchese family, was arrested by the FBI in a Scranton, Pennsylvania shopping mall. No one knows who gave the tip, but it was a tip that did Amuso in. Some thought it was Anthony that did it, looking to seize total power over the family. But there was no proof to back up this theory. And that logic seemed less likely as Anthony started immediately plotting Amuso's escape. Whether it was his intention or not, Amuso's arrest left the Lucchese family firmly and completely in Anthony's hands. He was acting boss now. And he was more paranoid than ever, with good reason. One by one, all the bosses were falling. Amuso was gone. Gotti and Sammy the Bull had been nabbed by the feds too, despite Anthony's warning. His chance to serve Gotti justice was gone forever. Diarco, listening to Anthony's disembodied voice over payphone after payphone, sensed the boss's panic. With every call, he was colder and more distant. Anthony, isolated in hiding, was disappearing into his own vortex of mistrust and fear. That made Diarco very nervous. He knew that the establishment of the four-man ruling panel was punishment for his bungling the Fat Pete assassination. But he started to wonder if Anthony was done punishing him, or if there was more to come. Diarco's anxiety came to a head on September 19, 1991, when one of the family's soldiers, Big Mike DeSantis, an excellent gunman, walked into the weekly meeting of the ruling panel in a bulletproof vest with a gun under his shirt. After a quick hello, he popped into the bathroom. Before anyone else could move, Diarco had darted out the door. 
He couldn't be sure. Perhaps he was being paranoid, too. But when you were dealing with a man like Anthony Gaspipe Casso, you had to think in his terms. And Diarco had participated in enough assassinations to know that the next man who emerged from the bathroom would likely walk out shooting. The next morning, on September 20th, Diarco's paranoia was vindicated. He got a call from his parole officer, who'd been assigned to him after a narcotic sentence. Law enforcement had gotten word. There was a contract out on his life. He'd been right. Anthony was going to try to kill him, just like he tried to kill Fat Pete. Just like all those men that he and Fat Pete had killed for Anthony. He needed to get to the FBI right now. They were the only ones who might be able to save him. But he couldn't go to the New York office. Anthony surely had someone watching that door. With his wife, his mafioso son, and several other close family members, little Al Diarco fled New York City for the quiet, suburban town of New Rochelle, where he surrendered himself to the FBI. As Fat Pete and Diarco sang to the feds, hundreds of pages of documents on Anthony Gaspipe Casso's brutality, wealth, and power piled up on the FBI's desks. Andrew Maloney, the U.S. attorney in Brooklyn, declared, Anthony Casso is the most dangerous, cunning, and ruthless mafia leader left on the streets. He is number one on our hit parade of wanted criminals. Anthony's circle grew smaller and smaller as the feds chipped away at his empire. He was dealt a major blow in June 1992 when Vic Amuso was sentenced to life in prison. Anthony was wild with panic. He ran from hideout to hideout, isolated but still making his calls to the Lucchese interim leadership. He made it another seven months before the FBI, now armed with all the ammunition they needed to keep him behind bars for life, traced him to a house in Mount Olive, New Jersey. Anthony was wearing a towel, still dripping from the shower, when the FBI slammed through the door with a battering ram. Anthony watched them walk in and, as smart as always, stood still as they handcuffed him. According to five families, the rise, decline, and resurgence of America's most powerful mafia empires, Anthony Casso was held without bail on charges of racketeering, extortion, and, quote, at least 25 murder and attempted murder accusations. But Anthony's quiet submission to arrest didn't mean he'd given up. He was still determined, still icy angry, and ready to fight for his family. He tried to escape from jail with the help of Lucchese men twice. Both attempts failed. In late 1993, he lost the support of his longtime friend and partner, Vic Amuso. Amuso, picking up some of Anthony's own paranoia, decided it was Anthony who had betrayed him to law enforcement back in 1991. And Amuso, for all Anthony's power, was still the family boss. At his word, Anthony was officially a pariah. That betrayal crushed him. And in February of 1994, two months before his trial, it led him to do the once unthinkable. He offered to talk in exchange for lenient sentencing. 
He'd fallen very far from the mafia principles he always purported to live by. Trying to save Gotti's skin by warning him of an impending indictment had signaled a change. Anthony was putting aside grudges, once fiercely guarded, in favor of preserving the mafia way of life however he could. But that was just the beginning. To preserve the family, he would sacrifice much more than his grudges. He killed men at the faintest whisper of disloyalty. When the hits failed, he went after their families. Anthony wanted to protect the life and his power, but he took it too far. And despite his meticulousness and intelligence, his house came tumbling down around him. In the end, it was his zealous, blood-soaked approach to maintaining power that brought him down, that alienated the men who were most loyal to him and sent them running into the arms of the FBI. His ruthless, unscrupulous approach to power even lost him the trust of Vicka Musso, the partner and friend who he had brought to the top of the Lucchese family with him. Amuso wouldn't have suspected that Anthony betrayed him if Anthony hadn't so coldly spilled the blood of so many men. He lost almost everything when Amuso and the Lucchese family abandoned him. And then he gave up the only thing he had left, his values. Perhaps most tragic of all, that final betrayal, when he offered to turn witness, did nothing to help him. The feds had so many important mafiosos talking by the mid-90s that they didn't even need Anthony. There would be no plea deal for him. He was sentenced to life in prison in July 1998, a sentence he is still serving today. Anthony was furious that he'd been fooled into betraying his values for nothing in return. In a 2006 letter to his biographer, Philip Carlo, he wrote the following. I am truly regretful for my decision to cooperate with the government. It was against all my beliefs and upbringing. I know for certain, had my father been alive, I would never have done so. I have disgraced my family heritage, lost the respect of my children and close friends, and most probably added to the sudden death of my wife and confidant for more than 35 years. I have never in my life informed on anyone. I have always hated rats, and as strange as it may sound, I still do. I surely hate myself, day after day. But he goes on to hint at the reckless self-assurance that led him to power, and the lack of trust that led to his downfall. He ended the letter on a different note, saying, Even at this point in my life, I consider myself to be a better man than most of the people on the streets these days. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Kingpins, for free. From your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Kingpins in the search bar. 
And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Paul Liebeskind. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Kingpins was written by Nora Battelle and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.